Hello, it's Belinda Rhodes with Guardian Daily on Monday the 4th of January. Today, another blow to political stability in Afghanistan as 70% of President Karzai's cabinet nominees fail to get approved. It was a big surprise to nearly everyone, including most of the MPs. A North Atlantic supergrid for renewable energy looks set to become a reality. If the wind isn't blowing in one place, it's probably blowing somewhere else. And the idea is that you balance the energy out across the continent. As Yemen comes under scrutiny following the attempted airline bombing on Christmas Day, we analyse the threat and how Britain and America hope to counter it. Analysts are predicting the fragmentation of the country, which of course will make it easier for al-Qaeda to operate. And the government's plan to allow product placement in British TV programmes comes under fire from health and children's charities. Broadcasters will now have a financial incentive to write storylines to give them the opportunity to feature a product of some sort. So we begin with the political turmoil in Afghanistan, where President Hamid Karzai has been dealt a painful blow. 17 out of 24 of his nominees for a new cabinet were rejected by the country's parliament on Saturday, setting the scene for more political instability to follow the difficult months that have already passed since last year's election. Some of the rejected nominees were seen as being cronies of President Karzai, to whom he owed political favours. So where does this leave him? I asked our Kabul correspondent, John Boone. Well, he's in a very awkward position because he has to keep happy the various ethnic power brokers and former warlords from Afghanistan's civil war in the 1990s who came to Karzai and backed him to win in the election uh, of, of last summer, in return for which they were all expecting to be rewarded, even in, in the form of jobs for their supporters or in some cases for themselves. Now Mr Karzai is going to have a very tricky time trying to assure these people that he can reward them for their efforts when the parliament has made quite clear that they don't want to endorse people who they think are either not competent or are only on the list of proposed ministers because of shady deals they struck with Mr Karzai during the election. So what have Afghan MPs been saying about this then? A a lot of them have been saying this is a major sort of step forward for democracy. It's Parliament trying to protect the government from being taken over by people who are simply just demanding quid pro quos for that political support at the election. That said, really no one expected this. There wasn't really an orchestrated campaign. It was a big surprise to nearly everyone, including most of the MPs. So there was no orchestrated campaign here. But nonetheless, a lot of uh, members of parliament are keen to, uh, to, to claim the credit and say this is finally parliament sticking up for itself. It's often been a very kind of abused institution. It's not supported at all by, by the president or indeed his office. And there have been frequent run-ins between the president and the parliament. So this, this is being seen as, a, as the parliament standing up for itself. So although it might be interpreted as a step forward for democracy, it's a blow to political stability many months after the election, still no stable government. How has the international community responded? Well, the head of the UN mission in Afghanistan, a Norwegian diplomat called Kai Eide, said he thought it would continue the period of paralysis that we've been in really since August and arguably since May. That was when the first of the many kind of political and constitutional crises surrounding the 
Afghan election first struck and that the country has been in limbo. Policies have had to be put on hold, progress on issues like cracking down on corruption and trying to improve the basic governance of Afghanistan have all been on the shelf waiting for this government to finally emerge. So Mr Idi, the UN chief, is concerned we'll have a couple more months of this paralysis. Uh, It's particularly unfortunate as there's a major international conference in Afghanistan on Afghanistan being held in London on January the 28th and that was really meant to be a sort of coming out party for this new look government and this new strategy to try and turn the corner on the failing mission in Afghanistan. World leaders are not going to be able to to point to a new government because it, it won't be in place. Really, the international community, particularly the British and the Americans, are most concerned with things like the Minister of Interior, who looks after the police force, the Minister of Defence, who looks after the army. These things are seen as absolutely key for trying to improve the situation in Afghanistan. And all of those have been endorsed by Parliament. So although the, the day-to-day functioning of government goes on, it's the, uh, the underlying political stability that President Karzai has to worry about, perhaps. What, what do you think he has got to look forward to this year? Well, great things are expected of Mr Karzai in 2010. This is really seen as the make-or-break year when he has to show that he's taking corruption seriously, both at the highest levels in his government, but also probably more importantly at the very local level where corrupt policemen extorting money from ordinary people is seen as the sort of thing that is really driving the Taliban insurgency and and making the government ever less popular. And and also to prepare for both the the surge of of international troops in the coming 18 months, but also their eventual departure as all the uh, international backers in Afghanistan look for what some people call an exit strategy, which they prefer to call a transition strategy of moving away from international players like the US and the UK and a few other key countries to one where really the Afghans are taking the lead. And so Mr. Karzai really has to perform something of a of a conjuring trick to try and really turn his government round and, and entirely change his style of government that we've come to know and expect over the last eight years. John Boone there in Kabul. An electricity supergrid for the North Sea has been something green campaigners have urged European governments to think about for some time. Now it looks as if it may become a political reality, as nine northern European countries meet this month to decide how it will work. The supergrid would unite the renewable energy resources of the nine European countries so that if the wind isn't blowing in Denmark, for example, it could draw on electricity generated by wind farms in France. I asked our green technology correspondent, Alok Jha, exactly how it would work. By 2020, the European Union's pledged something like 20% of its energy wants to come from renewables sources. So that's wind, geothermal, tides and everything. Uh, The problem with all of this stuff is that it's intermittent, so it's very weather dependent. So if the wind isn't blowing, it's not producing any electricity. So the idea of the supergrid is to connect all these projects up across the North Sea and in the the north of the Atlantic as well, so that if the wind isn't blowing in one place, it's probably blowing somewhere else. And the idea is that you balance the energy out 
out across the continent. It would work by high-voltage direct current cables under sea between different countries, uh, linking together the national grids of all these countries and linking together all of the sort of huge wind farm projects that are being planned in the North Sea right now. This is uh, an EU-based project, but it involves Norway. What would their role be? Well, the project as it stands now, is being done by nine governments uh, across Europe. So it's Germany, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Denmark, Sweden, Ireland, and the UK. And what they're just sitting down to do is uh, work out how this might function in the next uh, 10 years or so, you know, where, where they'd build what. Norway is involved in terms of if we do build this grid in the North Sea, then it would be natural for Norway to just have a connection to it because it has huge amounts of hydroelectric power, 30 gigawatts of hydroelectric power, which could be used as a sort of huge battery for Europe. So if a lot of renewable energy is available at one point across Europe, but the um, demand for electricity is low, it could just be fed right up to Norway and stored in the hydroelectric dams. So when there's peak power uh, necessary and the wind isn't blowing, it can just be shoved straight backwards. So it's a very uh, useful prospect for Norway and and for the rest of Europe to balance these loads again. So it sounds like a a phenomenal idea on on one level, but it also sounds like it could be a a political nightmare. I mean, who who or what would govern who contributes what and how much each country is allowed to take out, for example? Well, it would work in the same way that any transnational grid works. And there aren't huge numbers of them at the moment, although there are cables between different countries. And at the moment, if Britain wants to share power with France, it does it bilaterally. The European Union actually is looking at a Europe-wide grid because it knows that if you want to efficiently use energy and electricity, you have to have these sorts of things. So it's been looking at something already. And so it will produce a plan by the end of 2010. The group that we're talking about today, they will also produce a report by the end of the year. And the idea is hopefully that between those two institutions, you'll get a rationalized plan. And most probably what will happen is that the European Commission or the European Union will uh, decide what to do and uh, regulate it. And then it will be up to individual companies to build the, the lines and run them like, or like the national grids of all the countries. Um, there will probably be government support to make sure that they're, they're being regulated properly. But beyond that, it's just a market mechanism. Whoever needs electricity will pay for it. And uh, wherever it's being produced, they'll just sell it to, to whoever can pay most for it. And when might this become a reality? Are we looking years ahead, really? Yeah, several years. I mean, uh, by the end of 2010, hopefully there'll be a plan of some sort. Uh, People have been talking about this for decades already, uh, environmentalists. They know what the scale of the task is. We're talking something like by about 2030, the European Wind Energy Association reckons a huge number of new lines are needed anyway in Europe. So there is a huge amount of investment that's already going in. The International Energy Agency reckons that by 2030, you need to spend about 187 billion euro on uh, electricity transmission grids across Europe. So it's not actually that big a task because the, uh, the North Sea grid is just maybe 16 or 20 cables and there's going to be hundreds uh, built in Europe over the next couple of decades. So maybe by 2030 you could see this going at full pelt, but even by the end of 2020 uh, there could be something quite significant in place. And that was Alok Jar. Hi, I'm Sean Ingle, the editor of guide.co.uk slash sport. On the site today, you can get all the reaction from Manchester United's shock defeat at Leeds, live over-by-over coverage of the second day of the third test between South Africa and England. And we also have our Football Weekly podcast starring James Richardson, which looks back at all the weekend's football. That's all on guardian.co.uk slash sport. Still to come, why health and children's charities are fuming over the government's plans to allow product placement in British TV programmes.
But first, Britain and the United States closed their embassies in Yemen yesterday due to increasing concern about the terrorist threat from al-Qaeda groups there. There was no word about when they would reopen. The move followed the claim by an organization calling itself al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula that it was behind the attempt by Umar Abdul Muttalib to blow up a U.S. airliner on Christmas Day. The group has also urged Muslims to kill what it calls crusaders working at the U.S. and British embassies in Yemen. But how much concern was there in the West about what was going on in Yemen prior to these events? I asked our diplomatic editor, Julian Borger. Al-Qaeda has had a presence in Yemen for many, many years. It is Osama bin Laden's ancestral homeland uh, and, of course, the site of an attack on the uh, American warship USS Cole uh, some 10 years ago. So it's always been there. But the Christmas Day uh, attempt on this airliner showed this subsidiary in Yemen was able to mount quite sophisticated uh, attacks on the West uh, without cooperational training from al-Qaeda headquarters uh, presumed to be in the tribal areas in Pakistan. Now, Gordon Brown said on Sunday that he wishes to step up counterterrorism efforts in Yemen, and uh, General Petraeus is in Yemen to talk to the government about increasing counter- counterterrorism. But how are relations with the Yemeni government? What, what kind of cooperation is there with the government there? Oh, it's very close. I mean, Americans have been training a counterterrorism unit for some years there. There is great sensitivity about putting uh, American or British uh, boots on the ground, so to speak, because of the sensitivity of uh, Muslims in the Arabian Peninsula about the presence of uh, Western troops so close to Islam's holy sites. Uh, That would be seen as being explosive in Yemen, just as it has been in in Saudi Arabia. Uh, And so the presence for the time being is likely to be very much behind-the-scenes training and advising rather than taking any kind of leading role. Despite good relations with the government, Yemen is obviously a very difficult country to work in, with it it being very tribal, being a very poor country. So what hope is there really of of getting a grip on the situation there? Well, it's going to be extremely hard. Uh, The government, until now, has relied very heavily on uh, oil revenues, and those oil revenues are falling away, likely to dwindle to nothing in in the next 10 years. And as those uh, revenues dwindle, the grip of uh, the central government on the rest of the country is likely to weaken because it's principally a government run on the basis of patronage. And as the money runs out, that patronage weakens and the the hold that the government has on its country is likely to weaken. Some analysts are predicting the fragmentation of the country, which of course will make it easier for al-Qaeda to operate because there'll be more and more ungoverned space. Our diplomatic editor, Julian Borger, there. Government plans to rescind the ban on product placement in British television programmes have come in for hefty criticism from medical groups, teaching unions and children's charities. They say the move, which would allow a can of branded soft drink, for example, to appear in a TV drama, would only add to social problems such as childhood obesity. But TV companies suffering from the recession say the money is needed to make new programmes. I asked our health correspondent, Dennis Campbell, what in particular those opposing product placement are worried about. 
the things that leading medical organizations, children's charities and educational groups like the National Union of Teachers are worried about, two concerns mainly. First of all, that broadcasters will now have a financial incentive to write storylines in dramas or sitcoms or whatever deliberately to give them the opportunity to feature uh, a product of some sort, a mobile phone, uh, a piece of food, whatever it might be, something for which they earn a fee over and above the one for the program. And secondly, and particularly that by allowing, for example, alcohol or gambling or in particular fast food, junk food to be promoted, that will encourage you know, the, the sort of the misuse and the misbehaviour associated with those products that we know so much about already. Is the plan to rescind the ban evidence of the government com- coming under real pressure from the commercial TV companies? Yes, the government is quite open about the fact that particularly ITV have come to them and said, listen, we're having a hard time, there's a recession on, we're under pressure from the internet, revenues are declining, ad revenue is declining in particular, you know, we need you to help us out. And ministers are quite open about the fact that they want to give them sort of a bit of a helping hand by doing this. These groups represent some quite hefty opposition. I mean, the, the National Union of Teachers, the British Heart Foundation, which... Does it still seem likely that the government will press ahead with the plan to rescind the ban? It's certainly a very broad and influential coalition. And beyond the lobbying that they're doing, there are also several fairly heavyweight cabinet ministers who have quite serious concerns about this. Andy Burnham, when he was Ben Bradshaw's predecessor as culture secretary, said, you know, rejected it outright in a, in, a, in a very public way and said it would contaminate British programming and ruin its reputation for impartiality. Ed Balls, the children uh, and school secretary, is, uh, has concerns as well. So does Hillary. Ben, there may be others. So uh, it's, it's hard to tell them which way the, the government will go on this. I think one key player in this politically will probably turn out to be Peter Mandelson, the business secretary, because he is on a general mission to improve life for business during a recession and uh, you know, reduce regulation and unnecessary restrictions on business. So I think it's too, too close to call this one at the moment. And that was Dennis Campbell. And that's all from Guardian Daily today. The producer was Ian Chambers. I'm Belinda Rhodes. Thanks for listening.